I think there are specific autonomous driving things that are very practical and useful right now, and you can get them in all sorts of cars. But this concept of general autonomous driving, I think is a, is, it's one of those problems that you can get 90% of the way there, but that last 10% is really, 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 really hard. Some large percentage, like 50% or 90% of people identified with crime cameras in the UK turned out to be misidentified. And, you know, what are the implications of that from somebody actually being arrested and, and you know, going on from that? Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. We're living in an era of tech monopolies. We're living in an era where software is eating the world. And that's why we have David Smith, a cloud developer advocate and our community lead at Microsoft on the program to talk big tech. Prior to Microsoft, he was the chief community officer of Revolution Analytics, and he's now the editor-in-chief there. And he is very involved in the open source movement, helping developers to create incredible products, open source, for all of us to use. I wanted to have David on the program because software is so explosively important in today's world and becoming ever more so. And as we see the cloud battle shaping up between Google, Amazon, Apple, and all of the big players trying to get products built on their platforms, we see both platform wars and wars over developers and talent. Wanted to have David on so we could discuss. In today's episode, we discuss the ethical problems of analyzing data, why AI will affect so many massive industries, how governments need to start thinking about artificial intelligence and machine learning now, the reason why David thinks AI will create more jobs than it destroys, why we're still decades off from artificial general intelligence, and why open ecosystems and open source almost always win. And now without further ado, I give you David Smith. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the cash app and coffee. Seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So David, you're a lead cloud developer at Microsoft. And the first question has to be, what in God's name does that mean? Lead developer, cloud, uh, cloud developer advocate. What is a cloud developer advocate? Yeah, so as you're right. I am a cloud developer advocate at Microsoft. Uh, it's a group that uh, Microsoft put together a little bit over a year ago now, uh, drawing from some of the leading developers from all sorts of communities. So, you know, some of the leading people from the Kubernetes project, for example, people working in, jo- in Node, in Java. Uh, and for me personally, uh, my specialty was in the R programming language. And I work in a team that's dedicated to developers that uh, work on tools in artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, and data science. And basically, we just do what we've always done. Uh, we've always been involved in our respective communities. So I personally go to a lot of AI, machine learning, and data science conferences and give talks, but mostly it's about listening to people. Uh, We'd like to hear about what people are doing when it comes to developing new tools uh, in AI. 
and letting the the uh, Azure team back in Redmond know what people need to make those things work better. I think we'll definitely jump into that in a sec. Was that the, was that the idea behind GitHub to build the, the dev support? Well, I mean, Microsoft has always been so focused on developers, you know, even from its very inception, you know, with uh, Bill Gates building, you know, basic in his garage, that kind of a thing. And certainly GitHub was, was part of that. It's about Microsoft engaging at a very deep level with developers, you know, in the platform that developers work in so much, namely GitHub. And I think that's something you've really seen about how Microsoft has changed over the last few years is that it is really focusing now on going to developers where they are. And in these modern world, especially with a lot of uh, applications going into the cloud, a lot of developers are on Linux, for example. And that's why you'll find a lot of uh, Linux people in that cloud developer advocates group that I mentioned earlier on, and why Microsoft is working with all sorts of new tools uh, outside of the traditional sort of Windows ecosystem, because that's where developers are at. What is the future for developers, for platforms, for ecosystems, for open source? How do you think, see things playing out? Not from a company perspective, but for you personally? Oh, for me personally, I just think that especially when it comes to open source tools. And that's kind of my background, you know, coming from an open source community, uh, namely R. You know, that's where a lot of the uh, real activity in development is coming from these days. Um, that open environment, that collaborative environment with lots of people bringing new ideas into whatever domain, I think, has been just a, a real big driver in a lot of the advances that we've had in computer technology generally. And in particular in the cloud, you know, as you know, a lot of the cloud is built on open source technologies. And I think, you know, that's where a lot of the uh, excitement is. That's where a lot of the innovation is. And that's why Microsoft's been adopting it so strongly. It is, but that's not where a lot of the money is. So a lot of the open source developers end up building and busting their butt and making nothing. What do you think about blockchain and the decentralization movement that way? And then do you see open source evolving into something more? Uh, well, first of all, I think a, a lot of open source developers are working and being paid uh, uh, quite routinely uh, for open source developments. Um, you know, Microsoft, for, to take one example, is one of the largest contributor to open source projects in general. And we have hundreds and hundreds of developers that are focused on open source and being paid for it. The same goes for Amazon. The same goes for Google. The same goes for lots and lots of big mainstream companies like IBM and GE uh, that all have developers working on open source projects. So I don't think it's right to say that there's no money in it. It's true to say that pure open source companies are probably the exception rather than the norm. But I think open source has really been embraced by a lot of, sort of the big traditional tech companies. And there are lots of people doing it that way. Do you think that'll be the future? Because we have had an open source movement, so to speak, but we've also had some pretty strong platform wars. We've had the smartphone wars, we've had the PC wars. More recently, we have Google, Facebook, and Apple kind of building their own little walled gardens. Do you uh -huh. see that being the future of the internet? I don't. And I, and I think it's open systems that in general have been the ones that have had the long-term uh, success. You know, I think the, the experience has shown us over the last 20 years that closed source systems that did not allow people to extend that not allow people to innovate, that not allow people to sort of work with others have ultimately been usurped uh, by open systems at the end of the day. And so I think while, you know, these sort of closed systems can have short-term success in the long term, there's always all the alternatives that'll be successful. What's it like been working at the Microsoft 2.0, so to speak, and uh, <laughs> the rebirth phase? It's been much, much different than what I expected it was going to be like. When I was working in an open source startup and I heard that we were going to be acquired by Microsoft and I got to tell you, I was one of the most vocal opponents to it when I first heard about it. I just could not believe 
that Microsoft was going to inquire, acquire a company that was founded in open source, that worked in the open source domain. And I just couldn't see how there was going to be a cultural fit. I couldn't see how there was going to be a technical fit. But as we went through the due diligence process, I got to meet people at Microsoft. And it was just a very, very different environment than I expected it to be. Probably because we were working with the Azure group, which I think is probably a bit different than, say, the Windows or the Office groups. But, you know, there, everything was focused around what do developers do, what do developers need, and where do developers work, like, in, you know, in what technologies and what platforms. And there, it didn't really matter if you're a Windows or Linux or Mac or, you know, whatever the developers needed was really what people cared about. And, and that was a real eye-opener for me. And then also seeing just the technical expertise that was within the groups uh, that we were working with at Microsoft. And, and, you know, just I learned a lot just from being around those people. And uh, it really helped me become a better developer as well. Do you think that's why Microsoft's become more open now? Because the cloud architecture, cloud infrastructure is becoming such a large portion of the future business that, I mean, um, Microsoft Office is it's pretty, well, we don't need to get into that at this point. But they're, they're moving towards the future and seem to be doing a great job of it. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. And it comes, you know, right down from the top. You know, Sadia has said many times about, you know, going to where developers are, going to where customers are. And so in the case of Azure in the cloud, as I said earlier on, you know, developers, you know, I think more than 50% of virtual machines in Azure these days are Linux virtual machines. You know, that's where the developers are. And so being able to support that just makes good sort of business sense from a Microsoft point of view. And then you know, talking about Office, you know, I think one of the reasons why Office has been so successful has been about diversifying its platforms, not just from Windows, but being available on iOS and Android. You know, just going to where people want to consume their information and do their work has been sort of a core philosophy. I think I think Google Docs will ultimately crush them. But it's uh, it, we don't need to jump into that. My question for you is, why did you get into software, into AI? What's your background? What's your story? My background is actually in statistics. Uh, I trained as a statistician uh, in Australia and then uh, later on in the UK. At a time when statistics was really considered like a sort of a grimy back office type of a profession, um, half the time when I told people I was studying statistics, they would start asking me about cricket scores or baseball scores because that's what they thought statistics was all about. But it was, it's an industry that's been around for a long time about you know, making sense from data, being able to make predictions, being able to understand inferences, you know, causality. Uh, and data. Uh, but it wasn't until the big data revolution about you know, seven or eight years ago that industry and companies really started investing in collecting data and then analyzing data and then building applications upon data and then building entire businesses around data. Uh, and that's when statistics became data science and then data science became machine learning and now machine learning is artificial intelligence. And so I've kind of followed that whole journey through. What are the biggest myths about that journey, about that field, about machine learning, AI, data science? I think the biggest myth is that it looks magical, you know, this whole idea that, you know, you can point a computer at something at a scene, it'll tell you what's there. It all seems like magic, but behind the scenes, it's just pretty simple math, really. You've probably heard people talk things about like deep neural networks. You know, it's nothing more than additions and multiplications <laughs> at the end of the day. But what's really interesting to me, and I think what brings, what got me from statistics into artificial intelligence is the data that really sits behind all the mathematics. And, you know, once you get into it, and not even very deep, you kind of really understand that it's the data that is used to train these artificial intelligence models that's the real key to making them successful. The math is certainly advanced a lot, and it's certainly necessary, and sort of the computing capabilities that we have today have made a lot of these advancements possible. But I'm actually much more interested in understanding the underlying data and how that influences the way that these artificial intelligence systems work. Does that mean going forward, the majority of software and AI will be 
essentially a monopoly because he who has the most data and the most data scientists rules. There's certainly an aspect to that in that I think to train some of these um, advanced AI models, you do need a lot of data. And just to collect the amount of data is in itself expensive, just in terms of finding it, storing it. Training all these models requires lots and lots of computing capability, a lot of time. It requires lots of deep expertise from people to be able to understand that. So I think there's probably, you need to be a relatively big company to do that part of it. But I don't think it's it's going to lock people out because what you're able to do with a lot of these pre-trained artificial intelligence models is with relatively modest computing capabilities and relatively modest amounts of data, you can adapt the work that these big research departments and these big companies have done to your own specific problems with your own specific data. Like sort of call that custom AI, whereas you know the stuff that the big companies produce is pre-trained AI. But there's a lot of innovation that people can do based on that fundamental sort of platform of research without requiring massive investments in data or money or time. What's the future in terms of data, data privacy, cleaning up data, optimizing it for performance, et cetera? <laughs> That's a big question and many questions. Um, let's, you want to talk about data privacy, first of all? I mean, let's go for it. Yeah. Data privacy is, I mean, obviously, it's a big deal. I mean, most of the news that we hear about with respect to sort of AI and machine learning, you know, comes with issues around the data. Um, I think on the, on the privacy front, we hear a lot of complaints about things like GDPR, which is the European privacy law. But I think it has had a lot of positive influences, especially on big companies that work with data in taking in, in, in really demanding that they take the right processes when it comes to security and management of data and, and managing exposure of data in, in, in within applications and things like that. So I think, you know, from that point of view, it's the regulatory framework that's come around these systems that, that has really been, been helpful. I think an area where we have some more work to do is sort of goes one step beyond that. It's not just about the privacy and the security of the data, although that is super important and, and is fundamental. But the thing that, that worries me more about that is the applications of using that data in ways that pr- pr- uh, produce unfair outcomes. You know, when biases are inherent in the data that people are using to build systems and when those biases then get reflected in the recommendations that come about when you apply for a mortgage or, you know, want to get a new driver's license or want to fly from one city to another and your security screens, you know, there's all sorts of issues there around how that data is used and what the right way to do it is. So I think, you know, as an, as sort of a, as a discipline, as an industry, we're still really working our way through even what those issues are. Uh, and working our way towards, you know, figuring out how we can solve them. How would you solve those issues if you had a magic wand? Um, I would listen to some experts. <laughs> um, I've, I've, I've really been interested in seeing um, some of the work that some of my colleagues at Microsoft do, thinking particularly of the team in New York headed by Kate Crawford that is doing uh, a lot of the, the basic research in ethics issues around AI. And I think sort of the, the main lesson that I've learned from, from her and that team is just to understand that all data is biased. You know, data is collected by human, humans are biased, and those biases are at some level reflected in the data that's collected. And the first step is with understanding that those biases exist is to be able to anticipate them and to find methods that you can use to, you know, lessen their impact when we apply them in these real world situations. How do we deal with the fact that research is typically best done in a neutral setting, and yet all the money is in big business. So all of the AI guys and gals are headed over to Google and Microsoft and Baidu. 
how do we deal with that as a society where there's less and less talent for teaching, less and less talent for fundamental research? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, there is certainly a lot of research still being done at universities. But on the other hand, like, you know, I studied for my PhD in the UK, as I, as I remembered, and, you know, had the option of perhaps staying in the academic, the academic system and doing sort of research there. But on a personal level, I'm glad that I didn't. In that, certainly when I talk to my former classmates and colleagues that are still in that system, most of them are in the UK, but I think the system is quite similar here in the US, that there are a lot of constraints on academics these days when it comes to doing research. Um, There's this whole publish or perish paradigm that exists within universities these days, and research seems to more be driven by, you know, what grants are available or what might be more likely to produce a citable paper than actually sort of diving down into the fundamentals. And I don't think it's an ideal situation, but I think today it is some of those sort of big institutions that are providing the funding and the environments to do some of that fundamental research. Now, the downside, of course, is that it's in a private context and, you know, it's not necessarily, not, not, not necessarily the case of that research. Ultimately, it does get published, but, you know, I do, one of the reasons I do like working at Microsoft is that it does have a big research group that it is dedicated to this idea of doing that research and publishing it. What do you think the future of big tech is? Right now, we have tech giants who are, in essence, in essence monopolies. They're better at AI than in any of the governments. They're more powerful than a lot of governments. Where do, you see, where do you see the future? We've got Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple. You can throw Microsoft in there. You can throw Netflix in there. Where do I see the future going with respect to what? Are they, are they going to get bigger? Are they going to get smaller? Are some getting broken up? How do you see this challenging dynamic play out? Uh, I don't know. That, 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 that's a difficult question to answer because it, it depends on so many things. I mean, these companies are using AI for sure, but they're not all about AI. And... You know, trying to do these big comparisons between sort of social networking versus advertising versus software building versus cloud services. You know, it's just there are so many different factors intertwined. But, you know, I, I certainly think that one thing that is common amongst them all is that they're all using data, whatever their business is, to make their decisions. And they're employing a lot of these new techniques to make sense of much, much larger volumes of data than ever before. And that's kind of where we get that whole general sort of rubric for AI coming under. But I think, you know, those institutions and those people that are better able to make sense of these massive quantitative data, data, massive quantitative data that they have are the ones that are ultimately going to be successful in a technical sense. But then that all depends on what the other constraints are in their businesses, you know, governmental, regulatory, commercial, you know, all that kind of stuff. Do you get worried about jobs at all as AI progresses, as we're able to do more with less? Um, not yet. You know, there's, there's, you know, a lot of concerns around, you know, is artificial intelligence going to take jobs away from sort of certain, certain disciplines? But I think, you know, just looking back to, you know, the invention of, you know, sewing mills, you know, in the industrial age, it took away a whole bunch of jobs with respect to one particular task, but those jobs were replaced by sort of clothing manufacturers and things like that. And I think we're in a similar place here in that a lot of jobs that are very routine today, you know, for example, we're scanning videos for particular things that could be better done by AI systems, you know, will replace those particular jobs. 
But I also think that that technology is going to generate entire new industries that are always going to require sort of human intervention uh, to be able to make use of those raw products that have been generated by the AI systems. Now, I think it's a different question to wonder about, you know, what happens when we get to general AI. You know, if we get to the point where computers are able to replicate something akin to human consciousness. But, you know, personally, I think we're a long ways away from that just yet. Give me a timeline when you would say 50-50 chance. And you can ask lots of people and get lots of different answers. But I, I, I still think that, you know, we're decades, if not multiple decades away from even getting close to that. And the reason why I say that is not because, you know, I'm not sort of a researcher in sort of the general AI. I just kind of follow what people write about it. But I do have a, a good sense, I think, about what the underlying computations are behind artificial intelligence. And like I was saying earlier on, when you look down at it, down to it, it's not really that complicated. It's just simple mathematics applied to lots and lots of data. And I think, you know, today we've gotten to the point where we can, you know, get somewhat close to replicating the function of, you know, a human eye or a human ear in terms of looking at pictures or listening to sounds. But I think there's, if there's anything we've learned from sort of understanding of the brain is that vision doesn't happen in the eye and listening doesn't happen in the ear. That all happens within the brain that understands the signals that we get through vision and, and forms that into a picture in our head or understanding of our environment. But right now, we're only at the stage of being able to replicate the lens in an eye, really. Uh, but this whole idea of actually going from sort of analyzing a picture to understanding what it means, I feel like we're a long way off. I feel like the efforts we have right now in AI are looking at a brute force method of let's figure out something and then just punch it and punch it and punch it with more and more and more data, more and more and more compute power, more and more and more data scientists. In, in the science I've studied, there's a concept called Occam's razor, where the simplest concept is almost always the one that wins out. What are the odds that we're going about general artificial intelligence the wrong way and overcomplexizing something that should be inherently simpler and more elegant? Well, I mean, I mean let, let me give you a, a statistical perspective on that. I mean, we've had several attempts at sort of doing general AI over the last 30, 40 years, and they've all been quite different and none of them has quite panned out. So I think just purely on a Bayesian statistical perspective, you know, odds are that, you know, that, that, that this is the right one is, is probably not right. That being said, we can't deny that the advances we've had in these very specific cognitive applications, you know, like vision, like text analysis and speech analysis have, have really been groundbreaking. But nothing fundamental has changed in the underlying way that we've tried to solve those problems. It's just that we now have so much more data available to us and so much more computing power at our fingertips that techniques that have been suited in the past are now feasible today. Okay. So we haven't necessarily improved or iterated on those. We just have more. Oh, I think we have improved and iterated on them. But, but, it, but I think it's this recognition that it's the data that matters. It's not so much the algorithm that matters. And it's only recently we had the power to really realize that, that idea. And the power is becoming very interesting. How do you see cloud computing with wearables, AR, VR, and where we're headed in terms of all of this power seemingly at our fingertips? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it, there's all sorts of new interfaces that are available to us as humans to interact with computers. And, you know, I think, I think speech is, you know, one of my favorite ones of those. It was literally, literally science fiction just five years ago that you could talk to a device and it would understand what you said and come back with an answer. Now, that's not general intelligence. It doesn't understand what I, what I said to it, but it can parse the, the kinds of things I'm asking about and find an answer in a database and return that answer to me. But, you know, that kind of thing was just unthinkable 
even five years ago. And now it's routine. We all routinely talk to our you know, Alexa devices or our Siri on our iPhones or, or you know, any of those things. And we just feel like it's perfectly routine. I just try and imagine to myself, you know, what kinds of changes might there be in the next five years with respect to an interface that I previously didn't even know about just becoming routine. Uh, it might be VR. It might be wearable devices. It might be all sorts of things. But uh, it's great to see the different kinds of experiments. And I mean, sort of commercial experiments, you know, with products that, that are out there to see what works and what doesn't. Speaking of the, the voice interface, why is Microsoft not really in that game? What happened? I don't know. There's certainly Cortana within Windows and, you know, focusing on that as a voice interface with computers. And, and personally, I don't think that really took off, at least for me personally, is because I have a familiar interface right there in front of me already. I have the keyboard. You know, I use Cortana for a few things here and there, but I'm so familiar with using computers just in the natural way that it hasn't uh, added enough of a leap for me to be able to get into that. Whereas when I'm walking out in the street and all I have is my iPhone, you know, I don't have my computer near me. So that becomes a much natural kind of interface in that environment to use speech there. But certainly, I think Microsoft is focusing a lot on providing the underlying tools for other developers to build applications and devices like that. So a lot of these, a lot of the, the capabilities that you see within Azure, which is cognitive services, we provide speech and vision tools. A lot of the devices and services that Microsoft has provided to collect data at the edge of the cloud and bring it to local devices. I think all of that is there to make the framework available for developers that can create the next Cortana or the next wearable application. Which is less dangerous for developers because if they build it on Google, Apple, Amazon, et cetera, then they're playing with potential competitors. I think that that is the case in some cases, yeah. Oh, I, think, I think a lot of these big companies, I mean, Microsoft is famous in the past for stealing the IP, but that's, that's changed a bit now. But all of the tech companies have yeah. notorious backgrounds, to say the least. What do you, uh, you, seem to have, you seem to have a lot of political statements, et cetera, on Twitter. You seem to be very focused on making the world a better place. I'm curious where you see us headed and what are the biggest problems you'd like to see addressed? Um, there are so many big problems out there. Climate is one in particular that, you know, I am worried about. And I think uh, there's a lot of science that's yet to be done on understanding sort of how climate can change and what our effect on it can be. But there are also a lot of immediate problems as well. You know, half of the world is homeless. We still have not solved getting food. We produce enough food in the world. But we don't, do not get it to the right people fast enough. Safety and security, you know, all around the world. You know, these are all sort of big problems that, you know, come time and time again. And not all of these solutions are technical or technological, but I think we can provide technological assistance to, to alleviate some of those problems. How do you provide technological assistance without assuming technological superiority? That's one thing that Silicon Valley and tech companies in general have been criticized of. Yeah. Um, I, I think in general, it, it's working with local organizations and local partners and people on the ground, you know, where these crises are emerging is the most effective way to, to bring that kind of technology in. And I, I, it's part of my job. So excuse me for keep on mentioning Microsoft here, but, uh, you know, Microsoft just introduced a, a big AI for humanity program, which is $40 million over five years to do exactly that, you know, to identify some of these big problems that are affecting, you know, humanitarian issues and work with partners to bring technology to apply to those, those solutions. You know, a lot of the times 
going back to data, a lot of times, you know, there is data collected or data available, for example, using satellite images and to analyze satellite images to figure out, you know, where there is devastation in countries that are otherwise inaccessible and using that information to target aid. You know, these are the types of technology that you can bring to it. So it's not much about technological superiority in terms of, you know, one country versus another. It's about bringing the, the capabilities of technology to solve the problems within those, those countries. What technologies are you most excited about, David? Uh, I'm a data guy. Um, so I'm sort of interested in these applications of artificial intelligence that we were talking about before. I think the, there's lots of work that can be done in improving the vision side of things. And you were talking about wearables earlier on, you know, being able to identify objects in real time. One of the really interesting applications of that is uh, being able to help um, vision impaired and blind people, uh, I think, is a really exciting use of these uh, artificial intelligence techniques. You know, this whole idea that you know somebody that's blind could be wearing you know a camera or a pair of glasses or something like that, and that could inform them about the world around them and help them with their day-to-day lives. And that's the sort of in general the kind of technologies that I'm most interested interested in is ways that you know we can help people live their lives better, as opposed to you know fundamentally changing the way that we live our lives. How far off are we from some type of uh, blind assistance, glasses, et cetera? Uh, We're actually pretty close. Um, um, There's actually an app you can download to your iPhone called Seeing AI. Uh, It's produced by Microsoft, but it's an app that's um, designed for the use by blind people. It will do a lot of those things I was talking about. You know, for example, you can take a picture and it'll describe a scene. That'll tell you if the people that you're talking to are looking happy or sad and, you know, kind of what their emotions are. Um, And the vision for that, um, no pun intended, is to incorporate that into a pair of glasses so that rather than having to hold up a, hold up a phone and take a photograph, it can happen in real time uh, using a pair of glasses that you're wearing. Which would be incredible. Just solving a lot of solving disabilities, always interesting. In terms of improving people's life, potentially solving some disability and making people more flexible, what are your thoughts on autonomous vehicles, where we're headed, some of the big problems you see, and then potential thoughts just on AI challenges that most people might not be familiar with? I mean, first of all, I mean, there's this whole concept of autonomy and driving. I, I personally think it is really exciting. You know, even just, just very simple things. Well, I say very simple from the point of view of a driver. It's not simple in terms of AI, but, you know, just being able to detect, you know, when there is a vehicle in front of you that is coming too fast and, you know, being able to put on the brakes. And, you know, there's a whole sorts of safety aspects associated with this. But I think general, you know, the same way we're talking about specific AI versus general AI, I think there are specific autonomous driving things that are very practical and useful right now, and you can get them in all sorts of cars. But this concept of general autonomous driving, I think is, a, is it's one of those problems that you can get 90% of the way there, but that last 10% is really, 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 really hard. Um, and I think that's what, you know, we're seeing today, but I hope we make it. You know, I, I think it would be a real, and I just think it is feasible, but I think it would be a real revolution in terms of, you know, if we weren't driving ourselves anymore, how much safer the roads would be and how much more convenient our lives would be and how much more time we would have. Think back to ourselves that, you know, it's something I would love to see. Any ideas on time horizons just from what you've heard in industry? Well, it's always five years out, right? <laughs> um, and I, I think it just, it really depends on how close they can get to solving that, that last, you know, 10 or 5 or 1% of the problem. And the point about, around, about which the downsides of not solving the problem 100%, 100% 
outweigh, well, the benefits of all the safety associated with that outweigh the downsides of not solving that last part of it. And I think that's more of a, a question that we as society need to ask. There's probably regulation associated with this, but probably most importantly is that it's probably one of these, these problems that is best solved by one day taking every single existing car off the road and the next day making every car automated because then they could talk to each other and you know all sorts of problems would exist, but that's not the society we live in. And so I still wonder like, how we get from here to there, you know, dealing with the infrastructure we have but moving to the, the technological future we want. Is it fair to say we probably have to have self-driving vehicles that tell people that it comes down to kind of the, the trolley cart situation? Do you do you run over the, the, the five little kids or the grandma? And we can, or do you crash into a wall? And you kind of have to tell people, don't worry, we'll keep you safe. When in reality, we all need it to not keep you safe. We need you to crash into the yeah. wall. Do, do we have to trick people into it? Well, I mean, maybe not even that, but, you know, another thing that you might want to think about is, you know, what if we get to a world where, you know, most of the cars are completely automated and they're perfect at detecting pedestrians? You know, will we end up with a situation where if you're a pedestrian, you will, without fear, just jaywalk across the street anytime and stop traffic? And, you know, will that societal interaction with this technological system make it all break down because you can't have traffic if there are pedestrians just walking across the street all the time? So I think, you know, a lot of these problems that are social as much as they are technical. We just can't have nice things. <laughs> we can't have nice things. <laughs> How do you think about facial recognition and privacy as it relates to AI, governments, and corporations? Yeah, like all technologies, sometimes it's amazingly useful, but it can also be used for evil as well. And, you know, like all technologies like that, you know, they need to be used responsibly. <laughs> they need to be used responsibly. And we probably need some kind of oversight, whether that be governmental or otherwise, about how it's actually used. Um, you know, facial recognition technology has already been useful in things like, you know, detecting missing children, you know, that kind of thing. So objectively good uses. But you can imagine some of the downsides of it as well. I think I saw something recently that um, some large percentage, like 50% or 90% of people identified with crime cameras in the UK turned out to be misidentified. And, you know, what are the implications of that from somebody actually being arrested and, and you know, going on from that? And that kind of brings up a good related point is that, you can have these technologies, but there are always going to be false positives and false negatives. And it's kind of up to the humans in the system to, to decide what's more consequential, a false positive or a false negative, and what should we do in each of those cases. Face recognition is a really good, good example of that. You know, do you only trigger that kind of system when you're 99.9% .9 sure that the person you, the camera has seen is the criminal that you're looking for, you know, with the potential that you're gonna, going to let you know, a lot of criminals go by? But the downside to changing that threshold is that a lot more innocent people will be swept up in the system. You know, these are the kinds of questions that statisticians and data scientists have wrestled with a, with a long time. And I think that's the kind of perspective that I think is useful to bring into these AI conversations as well. Do we need to bring philosophers into the equation? Yeah, I think we need philosophers, anthropologists, social scientists. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of these questions are not technological and can't be answered by technology. They can only be answered by people. And also, I think that's another reason why I feel confident that there are always going to be jobs for people because, you know, these are questions that inherently can only be answered by society. In terms of development, AI, how do you see us progressing in terms of developers' job security? I've heard a lot of developers potentially have the ability to be replaced by AI in the not-too-distant future. Thoughts? Like I was saying earlier on, I think uh, there are a lot of jobs that are very repetitive, very routine. 
piecework type of jobs that could well be replaced by AI-based systems. You know, any job that involves looking through a bunch of pictures or anything, job that involves looking at a bunch of texts, you know, these are, these are things that can already be well automated by AI systems. But I think the thing to remember is that those jobs are currently producing products. And I mean products in a general sense, like information or data or records um, in order to serve some further system. And if we can increase the reliability and speed and reduce the costs of producing that information, there's likely entirely new classes of jobs that are going to be built on that foundation uh, that are going to be done by humans. What do you think in terms of community building and support? I know that was a big part of what you do and your background is. As a, as a developer advocate to try to build communities, what have you learned through doing this that you think others could benefit from? Um, that, that's a really good question. My work for the last 10 or so years, 10 or so years has been you know, working with communities of data scientists and developers um, to help them use the tools that they use better. And I think probably the main thing that I've learned through that process is that you, know, you can have the most amazing product in the world. You can have the most amazing software in the world, the most amazing technology in the world. But the real value of any of those things comes not from the technology itself, but comes from the ecosystem that forms around it. You know, all the people that use it, all the people that teach people how to use it, all the people that document how it's used and build new products on top of it. You know, everything that forms around technology is where the real value exists, you know, not in the technology itself. And so I think that's why, you know, I've always been super interested in helping people build that ecosystem. I think that's why companies now recognize that working with communities of developers or builders or users is as important in building up that ecosystem as is building the product itself in the first place. I think definitely as well. And in your opinion, are they starting to morph together into one person? Not to one person, but I think the communities are starting to, to morph together and to overlap a bit more. I think, I think you know, data scientists have, in general, uh, a much keener understanding of how important it is to have you know, reliable applications that work at scale. And I think machine learning engineers and developers have a much keener sense now, especially in some of these sort of big failures of AI, is about how data can drive the model in ways that is way beyond just the code that they write. Yeah, it always, it always comes back to the data. Education, if you, if you had to go back, you restart, you're 18 years old, what would you study today and why? Or what would you do? What would I do? Um, when I was about 19, I had a big decision to make. I could either have gone into computer science or I could have gone into mathematics and statistics. And I ultimately chose mathematics and statistics, which I think has served me well. But actually, the, I didn't actually do either of those things when I was 19. Uh, I actually took two years off and started traveling the world, spent uh, about a year as a backpacker traveling through, through Europe and stuff. And I think that was the best learning experience I had, was just learning a little bit more about the way the world is different from what I grew up with and uh, how not every answer is the right answer in every place and just how to fend for myself. And I think, you know, if I was going to give advice to somebody at that age about what to do with their career is first to travel a bit and learn a bit. Did you receive that as advice at your age or did you just decide to go for it? I just decided to go for it. I had learned French as a kid in Australia where nobody speaks French and was just determined to use that six years of learning somewhere. So I decided to travel to France and it just kind of went from there. What was the, what was the most impactful thing that happened or most impactful thing you learned? I think my, my probably that the best laid plans always go awry and how to deal with things going wrong, you know, from missing trains to running out of money to getting lost to losing friends, you know, all that kind of stuff. 
I think just, just learning that level of adaptability and independence and just while learning that things are different <laughs> um, was probably the biggest lesson I ever learned. And I think that would be even more valuable today where a lot of kids have grown up in slightly easier times than you may have had. Yeah, I think that's right. What, uh, if you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, et cetera, what would it be and why? With respect to artificial intelligence, it's the number one is there's definitely things that are useful here and it's going to change all of our lives uh, in significant ways in the future. But my call to action would be to, especially for those people that are working with AI systems and building the, the AI systems, is to understand the data, understand where that data came from, uh, understand how it was collected and by whom, what kind of people contribute to that data and do those people reflect the kind of people that are ultimately going to be using the application that you're working with or, or developing and think about how those biases uh, that exist in their data might manifest themselves in the decisions that you're having somebody make based on the AI system that you're developing. Uh, think about the data, think about how it can impact people, think about how to make it better. Especially because the end user will never think about this. The judge will never realize why the, the AI is giving them a certain sentence versus another. They'll just assume that it's intelligent. That's correct. And that, that's kind of the thing I was talking about. You know, AI is not magic, but a lot of us perceive it to be magic, especially those that you know, are new to dealing with these AI-based applications. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, there is that extra level of authority that comes from having information spoken to you than appearing on a glowing CRT screen. Um, and I think, especially for those people, as I said, that work in developing these systems, they have a responsibility to understand the influence that they're going to have on people's lives and to understand how that influence comes about. I think that's an incredibly important thing to pe leave people with and probably a good place to wrap this up. Remember what you build impacts the world. I think this is something that technologists, developers, et cetera, often forget. They often forget the bigger picture consequences. Where's the best place for people to find you, David? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Revo David, at R-E-V-O-D-A-V-I-D. And we will put links and everything in the show notes, guys, fringe.fm. You guys know what to do. If you haven't subscribed, hit the subscribe button. And if you're interested in AI or have something incredibly awesome for Microsoft, make sure you reach out to David. Great. Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. Hey, hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know you can make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM to support our mission? Yes, you heard that right. Tax-deductible. You can support us in the work we do and all the good that we're trying to accomplish in the world, or you can save your tax dollars for the tax man. It's your choice. We like to think we're a bit more efficient and important for the world and hope you do too. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit that's focused on advancing science worldwide. This means that you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation. All of these would greatly impact the level of good we're able to do in the world and the quality of show we're able to produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give. And really, if you care about our mission in the world and the work that we're doing, please consider supporting our efforts. You are quite literally deciding whether or not we continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, it's fringe.fm give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you so much and have a great day. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.